oh my gosh, next time I, I cook, like I can't, I cannot have that thought again. I do not want to have that thought ever again. And what that is, is thought stopping. And what happens when you try to stop thinking about something, you think of it more and you think of it more and you think of it more. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Jenna Overbaugh. She is a therapist, personal trainer, and mom. She hosts the podcast, All the Hard Things, in which she dives into OCD along with other subjects. We're excited to have her on herself today, and we're going to revisit some things that we've covered in the past while also diving into some new topics and putting a different lens on this conversation. So Jenna, we would love it if you took a moment to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah. Well, like I mentioned before, thank you guys so much for having me. I have been following you. I'm kind of nerding out right now, but (laughs) I'm super excited to be here. OCD and anxiety is something that I've always felt really strongly about. And I've loved researching, working with professionally. And then it really rocked me hard personally when I became a mom three, three and a half years ago. So you know, we'll talk about personal experience. We'll talk about, you know, professional experience with all this. So hopefully giving all of your audience and listeners a lot of good information. Well, and you can speak on both sides of it so well. So that's why that's one of the big reasons why we wanted to have you on. And we've covered postpartum anxiety in the past. But for you specifically, you can talk about postpartum anxiety and then postpartum OCD and how they can look the same, but how they also are very, very different. And honestly, I didn't think of OCD as being super common, especially in the postpartum season. But the more that we looked into your content, honestly, Jenna, light bulbs started going off. So can you get into some of the differences between anxiety and OCD, and then also some of the more common ways that OCD comes into parenthood? So once we we become mothers, once we become parents, things can definitely change. So a few that I know our listeners would really be interested in is the harmful intrusive thoughts, um, the sexual intrusive thoughts, the overchecking, and then also perfectionism. Yes, of course. And so first things first, I totally validate the confusion at times between postpartum anxiety or just anxiety in general, and then OCD. So if I had it my way, and in a couple of years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if they were more characterized as existing on some kind of spectrum. And a lot of professionals in the field would make the argument that functionally, they're not that different. And so when it comes to treatment, when it comes to actually identifying how to help these disorders and make the individual feel better, it's kind of like potato, potato. But really the key differences are that generalized anxiety disorder, which is kind of what we're more so referring to when we talk about postpartum anxiety, um, it's just more general for a lack of a better way to describe it. So it's like low level or more moderate level anxiety about a lot of real life kind of scenarios like finances, the future, the health of yourself or someone else who you care about. 
it's kind of often described as like that rickety old grandma who's just kind of like worrying back and forth in the corner. Um, it, a lot of times people with anxiety will say that's kind of just always how I've been. I'm just an anxious person. But then on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, we have obsessive compulsive disorder, which used to be an anxiety disorder in the DSM in the diagnostic manual of um, mental disorders. It's not anymore. I don't know why, um, but it's more specific, you would say. So whereas someone with generalized anxiety disorder might feel like, oh my gosh, like, is my child eating the right food? Am I feeding them the right food? Somebody with OCD might think that they accidentally poisoned their baby without knowing it. So you can see how like the function of those things are the same. And they're maybe the same monster when you get down to the nitty gritty of it. And some of the behaviors might be exactly the same too, like overchecking ingredients, um, asking for reassurance from other family members. Really common one is to have moms or dads, because dads deal with it too. Any kind of caregiver can really go through this, is to kind of off put these responsibilities onto the other caregiver. So for instance, I, I, from personal experience, I had a really hard time putting socks on my son. Um, and for the longest time I refused to put socks on him. I was terrified that I was going to snap his ankles. I made my husband do that for probably the first year. Um, so that's a, a little avoidance strategy that, uh, feels good in the moment, but obviously is detrimental in the future. Um, so really, when we get down to it, generalized anxiety disorder or postpartum anxiety is more general. It's uh, not as specific as OCD. I think they both can be very debilitating. So I don't think that's necessarily a difference, but I do think one's more general. OCD is a little bit more specific. Um, in general anxiety, it's kind of insidious, like it just kind of manifests very slowly over time. I've heard and I've experienced that OCD can really hit hard and hit fast. Like all of a sudden, I just had this thought that I, my son was possessed, for instance, like it came out of kind of nowhere. And that's very characteristic of obsessive compulsive disorder, that it is very intrusive. It happens kind of out, almost like outside of you, like where the heck did that come from? Almost unprompted. So definitely very confusing because they're both very anxiety driven. And at the end of the day, the treatment is the same. It always comes back to exposure and response prevention, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, a lot of really common obsessions and compulsions that moms especially struggle with, like you mentioned, are harm intrusive thoughts, sexual intrusive thoughts. There's just a lot of overly checking, a lot of perfectionistic behaviors. And the biggest thing I think for parents or caregivers to know is that all of these things are actually very, I want to say normal and common, right? So common meaning they're commonly experienced universally. So we all have intrusive thoughts. It's not an OCD person type of experience. We all have those thoughts that kind of come in out of our, our left field and we're not sure where the heck they came from. It's just that we're able to kind of let those go sometimes easier than others. We don't take responsibility for it. We don't necessarily judge it. We don't try to feel better about it. We just kind of let it come and let it go. But someone with OCD really latches on to that feeling or that thought that was intrusive and they misinterpret it as being significant somehow. So we all have probably have had harm intrusive thoughts anytime that we've been in traffic, you know, you know, really stressed out on our way to work and someone's just going really slow or we're fighting with a loved one or our husband put the dishes away the wrong way or whatever. Like we've all had those silly intrusive thoughts, these images or these urges that come over us 
we don't necessarily mean anything by them and we're okay with that. We just move on with the next thing. Someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, especially a new mom, is going to probably struggle with having that thought. She's going to probably want to judge that thought. Oh my gosh, what does that mean about me that I had that thought? Would I ever actually want to do something like that? I can't think like that. That's horrible. And then they go off to the races trying to feel better and trying to figure it out. So sexual intrusive thoughts are also super, super taboo. No one talks about them. So as little as people talk about postpartum issues in general, even fewer people are talking about OCD, even fewer, fewer, fewer people are talking about sexual intrusive thoughts, but they happen often. So people will sometimes come to me and say that they struggled. You know, I I had this thought in the bathtub, like, did I look at my son's private parts for too long? Like, I feel disgusting. Like, I just, I would never do anything like that. But oh my gosh, like, what does that say about me that maybe I looked at it for a little bit too long? And again, these are the last people on earth who would act on these urges. If anything, they're of so avoidant of these situations. They're the last ones to give their babies a bath. They're the last ones to change their diapers. I work with a lot of parents who are terrified of scissors and knives and anything sharp. So they get rid of all those things in the house. It's just really, really devastating. And as parents, I think there are three things that OCD really latches onto that make it a really normal experience for us, very based in evolution. One, OCD and anxiety doesn't like anything that we feel really, really responsible for. And what else do we feel really responsible for but our babies, right? So anytime that we feel really responsible for something, our anxiety is going to go through the roof. The next thing that anxiety and OCD hates and latches onto is anything that we value. So anything that we value and what do we value more than our babies and our families, you know, OCD and anxiety is going to latch the heck onto that. And then the next one is anything that's vulnerable. So there's actually a really cool phrase. It's a really cool concept called the Arnold Schwarzenegger effect. Um, It's this concept that no one has intrusive thoughts about Arnold Schwarzenegger because he's big and he's burly and tough, right? No one would have a harm intrusive thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger because he's big. And if I ever took him on, like, obviously he would kick my butt. We don't think that way about little babies. They're so vulnerable. They're so fragile. And it would just be really awful if anything happened to them. So put all those three things together, put hormones into the mix, a huge major life transition, parental conflict, lack of sleep, not taking care of yourself as far as food and intake goes. And it's just an absolute disaster for anxiety and OCD to take root. So I think I got all of the questions. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And and so much does change. So much does change with lack of self-care, having the hormones change, your entire identity changes during that time. So no wonder some of these things can pop up and pop up really quickly. I'm glad you brought these things up right at the beginning, Jenna, because it can be that spectrum. So I think for many of us, and even when you when we started doing research on OCD and when we were writing this script, it was, well, I don't have OCD because OCD is the obsessive hand washing. It's you know flipping the light switch on, off, on, off. That's what you think of, or that's what at least I thought of mm-hmm. when I thought of OCD. But then it really can be that spectrum of some of those tendencies with perfectionism and overchecking and the intrusive thoughts that you brought up. But also right away from the start, having that definition between what anxiety looks like and what OCD looks like. Like I'm so glad we were able to really define that for our audience. Yeah. And I think the the average amount of time that it takes someone who's struggling with OCD 
when they start struggling with OCD to when they get the right treatment for it, which is exposure and response prevention is I think 10 to 17 years. And I think, I mean, that's just astronomical. Right. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, of no fault of anyone in particular, it's just the way that media is and the way that mental health is. We only talk about OCD as existing about, you know, hand washing and checking on and off. And while those things definitely happen and definitely happen in the motherhood and parenting context, right? Like I've, I've worked with so many people who do obsessive, obsessively cleaning their babies or cleaning themselves before they touch the baby. I'm working with someone right now who is like terrified of leaving the house or getting groceries delivered or getting food delivered because who knows what that person has touched. And then that's going to come into the house and then that's going to infect everything that the baby touches. And it's just a disaster. And the checking, right? Like checking lights, checking plugs, checking a big one that I didn't, I somehow did not struggle with this, but it seems so common is the heat, right? Like the, the temperature in the room. So those things can be, it can be those things. It can also be these other things. It can come up in harm and sexual intrusive thoughts. Like we talked about, it can come up in relationship. OCD is another one that's getting a lot more research attention and kind of clinical mention these days, relationship OCD. Am I the right mom for my baby? Like this baby wasn't meant for me. This baby wasn't meant for me. And I think we all kind of at some point or another have those thoughts. Again, it's not the thought that's the problem. It's our interpretation of the thought and how we respond to that thought. So can we have that thought and let it pass and move on and continue with our regularly scheduled programming? Or do we latch onto that and do a ton of Googling and a ton of researching and a ton of avoiding of that baby and a ton of comparing your experience to others? It can just become a mess. And there are definitely a lot of ways that this can show up for, I want to say women, but for any caregiver, really. Yeah. And I love that we're bringing this to light because I had actually never heard of like postpartum OCD before. But just being around a lot of other women, and especially women that birthed during the pandemic, like their inability to leave the house for an extended period of time because we weren't supposed to, has had lasting impacts about them really having a hard time leaving the house. So I think these are really important conversations. One thing that we did want to get into with you is the cycle of anxiety and why it makes sense that moms are ridden with these issues postpartum. So I would love if you got as tangible as what to do about the cycle of anxiety and what not to do. Because when we were looking into your stuff, there were some things where you were like, you actually don't want to do this because it would make it worse in the long run. Yes. Oh my gosh. It seems totally counterintuitive, but you basically want to do the opposite of whatever your anxiety or your OCD is saying. Um, and of course, not everyone out there who, who does these tendencies has OCD, right? Like it comes down to a couple of other things that I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. But if this is something that you're wanting to address, this is kind of the cycle of, of anxiety slash OCD, because again, different words, different disorders, but they really function exactly the same. So first things first, we all start out with this very normal intrusive thought. And so this is what we would call kind of the obsession, but obsessions can be intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings. 
So they're not just thoughts. They can also be flashes of images or they can be feelings like just a feeling that feels uncomfortable in your body. One that's probably going to blow a lot of people's minds, but I guarantee other people out there are struggling with it. Um, sometimes, especially with like the, the harm intrusive thoughts, you know, you might feel like real, obviously like really, really angry, like, especially during a conflict or something, you might feel really angry and then have that paired with an intrusive thought. You can imagine that would be really scary for someone who has OCD. And then, so we all have those thoughts, right? We, we all have those thoughts. The problem, like I've referenced earlier is not the thought because we all have them. It's our misinterpretation of that thought. So let's say I have an intrusive thought that, you know, I'm cutting up vegetables with my son. I'm cutting up vegetables. I'm using a knife. All of a sudden he comes a little bit too close to me. And I have this intrusive thought. What if I just accidentally or on purpose stabbed him with this knife? And those intrusive thoughts can be on accident. It can be on purpose. It can be whatever. Now, let's say I was, I had a neurotypical brain and I did not have OCD and I didn't have an obsessive compulsive response to that. I might become aware of that thought. Oh, that was weird. And hi, honey, what is it that you need? Mama's cooking dinner right now. What can I get for you? And I continue to cook. I continue to cut, you know, cut my vegetables, continue to engage with my son. And I don't give that thought any other analysis. I don't give it any more attention. Now, let's say that I had OCD and, you know, I was struggling in that moment. And this is an example of how an OCD brain might respond. They're cutting up vegetables with their child. Child comes a little bit too close. They have this thought pop into their brain or this image of stabbing their baby. It's very intrusive. It feels very wrong. It feels ego dystonic, which means this, this feels like it's not coming from me. This is not consistent with my values. I do not want to do this. Where the heck did that come from? And so their response to that, if we have OCD, they're going to misinterpret that thought instead of being able to just let it go, let it come and let it go. They're going to take responsibility for that thought. They're going to think things like, oh my gosh, what does that mean about me that I have that thought? Does that mean that I actually want to do that? Does that mean that I can be alone and be trusted with my baby? They'll start to judge that thought. That thought is bad. That thought is sick. That thought is perverted. That thought is horrific. As opposed to a thought can just be a thought. It doesn't have to have any attached meaning to it. They're also probably going to try to control the thought. Oh my gosh, I never want to think about that again. Oh my gosh, next time I, I cook, like I can't, I cannot have that thought again. I do not want to have that thought ever again. And what that is, is thought stopping. And what happens when you try to stop thinking about something, you think of it more and you think of it more and you think of it more. So that also maintains the cycle. And then another thing that they'll do is they will, they'll feel obviously really anxious because of all those misinterpretations. And because of that anxiety, they're in that kind of fight or flight mode. They're really freaking out. They feel the need to do some type of compulsion. And so this is synonymous with a ritual. You might also see it be described as like a safety behavior. Um, this is some behavioral response that someone has to make that anxiety go away that they experience as the result of an obsession. So uh, compulsion can be external. So it can be things like dropping the knife, having husband take over kitchen tasks, avoiding cooking dinner next time. It can be Googling online, had intrusive thought about baby. What does this mean about me? 
It can also be mental. It can be, no, I wouldn't have that. I would never do something like that. It might be another mental ritual of trying to like play out that scenario just to make sure that you wouldn't want to do it. Anything can be a compulsion. If you're doing anything repetitively with the intention of reducing the anxiety that you feel from an obsession, that would be a compulsion. Now let's say, so cool. That feels so good. I just got rid of the knife. We're out of the kitchen. I feel so much better. That's great for your brain because in that moment, it provides you with that temporary relief. It feels good. You're out of the danger zone. Your brain feels good. Like you survived that situation. The problem though, is that you've just via negative reinforcement, totally reinforced that the meaning of that intrusive thought. So by putting down the knife, by asking your husband to take over dinner, by removing your child from the kitchen, you have just reinforced that intrusive thought meaning something in the first place because your brain is kind of like, well, I guess Jenna thought that thought was scary because otherwise she wouldn't have responded the way that she did. And so next time you have that thought, it's going to be even more alarming. It's going to be even more scary. And you're going to have to go through that cycle all over again. It's kind of like if you were afraid of dogs. And so let's say that you were always afraid of dogs. You walk down the street, there's a dog coming your way. You avoid and you go the other direction. You go to the opposite side of the street. You temporarily are like, Phew, that feels so much better. Like, good thing. Good thing I I didn't see that dog. But what you've just done is you've just taught your brain that the only possibility was that that dog was going to bite you. You're not opening yourself up to also the possibility that maybe the dog wouldn't have cared at all about you. Maybe he would have actually been a pretty cool dog. Maybe he would have like, like played with you a little bit or licked your hand. But by avoiding like that, by doing these rituals, you're only ever giving into the learning that something terrible would have happened. So when you get rid of the knife, for instance, or do whatever ritual it is that you're doing, you're essentially telling yourself consciously or not, thank goodness you did that ritual. Thank goodness you put that knife away. Thank goodness you didn't put the socks on your child because otherwise your worst fear would have happened. And so that's kind of how it just manifests. And when you do that really repetitively, all day, every day. And it starts to get to the point where you're feeling like you're not in control anymore. That's what we think of when we think of OCD. So interesting. So it sounds like not avoiding something, but rather going into it is a oversimplified way of like kind of what you just explained. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we've called before is exposure and response prevention. So it's uh, otherwise known as just ERP um, or exposure therapy. Sometimes people call it, but it's the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety. Um, Really effective for moms for any type of OCD. Um, But basically you'll, you would do exposures, which are these anxiety provoking things, walking in the direction of the dog, continuing to chop vegetables while your son is in the room, put sock on baby, But you also have to resist the rituals, right? So we have the exposure piece, but then you have the response or the ritual prevention piece. You need to make sure that you're not um, checking his his ankles later to make sure that he's fine. You need to also make sure that you're not, you know, cringing as you walk near the dog. Um, You need to make sure that you're not having your husband watch over you just to make sure that you don't, you know, lose control or something like that. So it's really about putting yourself in these anxiety provoking situations, letting yourself sit with that feeling, 
And eventually you get used to it. It's a process called habituation. It's the same process of like, if you jump into a pool and it's really cold at first, you eventually get used to it. The same thing happens with your anxiety. It's just often that we're not willing or able to kind of let time pass on its own. So we end up giving in. We end up doing these avoidance behaviors or checking behaviors, perfecting whatever it is. And we get stuck in a loop and we never give ourselves the opportunity to see that we never actually had to do that stuff in the first place. Like everything probably would have been fine, but yeah, it can be really, really messy. And yes, for the most part, the oversimplified way of doing it is to go about your life, living your values and ask yourself, like, what would I do if fear wasn't part of the equation? Like, what would it mean for me to live my values driven life? What would I do if anxiety and OCD was not part of this equation? Okay, you guys, we're going to take a quick ad break. And then we'll be right back with Jenna explaining more about this topic. Our first partner for this podcast episode is Bloody Buddy. If you follow me personally, you know how much I love the period cups that they make because it makes your period just so much less annoying. You only have to empty your cup one or two times a day. So it's really not a big deal compared to tampons or pads. So we love Bloody Buddy. We both use it, both shout it from the rooftops, and they have partnered with us to offer you guys a discount of 10% off if you use the code herself at checkout. So the other great thing about this, which Abby's a penny pincher, is that you can pay for these period cups, a two pack. It'll last you 10 years. You won't have to buy anything else for your period. And it makes much less waste for the planet. And those are two things that we can definitely get on board with. So you can go to bloody buddy cup dot com. And again, make sure you use the code herself at checkout to save yourself 10%. Okay, back to the episode. Jenna, you have piqued our interest. Like, I am so interested in this next question. Because as you go through these answers, I keep on wondering, like, what is normal? Like, what is normal? What is not normal? So can you please go into more detail on this? Yeah, and I think that everyone probably has that on their minds, right? And you know, it's, it's hard to say. I don't think that people, it's not this like immediate crossover, like, yep, suddenly you've met the criteria. Like, obviously these are things that exist on a spectrum and are very personal. The qualifiers that I would always come back to for people are, is this causing you distress and impairment? So when it comes to any psychological disorder, for the most part, we're always asking, you know, about other things, you know, we're always asking about the symptoms, how long you've been struggling, but it always comes down to, for the most part, is this causing you distress and impairment? So are you not okay with the way that you've been living? Is this getting in the way of your functioning? So if these issues are not causing you distress and impairment, like you're okay with the way that you've been living, and it's just this thing that you do every once in a while, a couple of quirks and you're okay with it, like do what works for you and your family. I, we all have things like this that we do not to say that we all have obsessive compulsive disorder, but to have an absence of these behaviors is I think a ridiculous standard. Like we all experience anxiety. We all experience depression. We all experience some of these symptoms uh, to some level. The purpose is not to get to a zero on all of these 
you know, levels. It's just to get to a point where you feel like it's functional for you. Like, can you live your life and live an enjoyable life, have a good quality of life without it causing distress and impairment? So you would have to ask yourself that, like, does this cause me distress and impairment? Am I wanting to change it? And if that's the case, then that's definitely a check mark in the box of could be potentially OCD or anxiety, like generalized anxiety disorder, what we would diagnose it as. Another area is if it's interfering with your quality or your quality of life or your activities of daily living. So you might also hear this being called um, ADLs. So if it's if these behaviors are interfering with your activities of daily living, so your ability to um, go to work, your ability to stay at home and be with your baby, if that's your job, uh, your ability to take care of yourself or your baby, your ability to eat, to shower, to, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever it is. Um, if you feel like it is getting in the way of these really important um, areas of your life that are not only values for you, but also necessities, um, that would be kind of a check mark in that box, too, that this might be something that you want to talk to a professional about. And I think, too, this is not diagnostic in any way, but I think any time that a family member is being brought into the ritualistic behaviors. So I think a big red flag and a big just like huge maintaining force in OCD and anxiety is when other people in the family or in the you know housing unit start to get pulled in and involved in these ritualistic behaviors. So for instance, me getting to the point where I couldn't do this for my son anymore, I needed my husband to take over. There was also a point where I was so sleep deprived. I had the intrusive thought, like, what if I was so sleep deprived that I bashed his head against the wall and I didn't remember? And again, that could be an intrusive thought that many women have. They kind of let that go. You know, it comes and it goes. They go back to bed. I would get stuck for probably three or four hours a night just checking his body for any bulging spots or bleeding or, and like, it shouldn't take four hours to check a newborn, (laughs) right? Like, but I had to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And so that's also very characteristic of when you would feel like OCD is kind of spiraling out of control. You do something and you can't walk away. You feel even more uncertain. You feel even more uncomfortable and you just keep having to do these repetitive behaviors, even though all logic is telling you this is crazy. You shouldn't be doing this right now. Like, why are you doing this? And you still do it anyway. That's a sign that potentially therapy could be really helpful. But that is to say also that wasn't enough for me either. Just observing him and checking him for multiple hours. I would have to wake my husband up in the middle of the night and make and have him check. So I think it's just really an awful situation whenever family members get pulled in. It's a really big red flag and a big sign that this is spiraling out of control and something that a therapist can definitely, definitely help with. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the reasons our podcast exists is to say, you guys, you don't have to live with these things. There are things that you could do to get help is really important to us. We had another therapist on the podcast, Chastity Holcomb, and she explained it really well when she was talking about anxiety. She said, you should be able to throttle it down. Like there's a place for it, but it shouldn't be that you always have this big winter coat of anxiety on. Like sometimes you should be able to have a lighter coat on. Right. So one question that we had is that it seems like more and more people are dealing with anxiety. 
So I wanted to know from your clinical perspective, do you think that this is true or do you think that it's now this conversation is starting to get less taboo? More people are talking about it. Or do you think we are living in a world that is producing more anxiety? I wouldn't be surprised. And I don't know the answer, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit of both. I think that, you know, it's so interesting how we parent and how we talk about mental health is so different from our parents and our grandparents. But I don't know that our experience is all that different. Like I walk around and I see my mom with my son and I'm like, I don't, I don't say this obviously, but she definitely has some ritualistic behavior. She definitely has some anxiety behaviors going on. And I don't even know kind of what's going on in her head because she would never talk about it, but who knows, right? Like who knows what's actually going on underneath. I do think that parenting in general and motherhood in general, we're becoming, I hope more open about that experience and the reality of that experience. I feel like before I got pregnant, no one talked about a lot of this stuff or maybe we were just starting to, but now all of a sudden I'm seeing more encouragement about that, which is great. I think that's great, but I don't know. Like, I I do think that we live in anxiety provoking times. Obviously the pandemic has been a complete circus for that. Um, and just a breeding ground for anxiety, right? When you're in your house and you can't leave and, you know, now we're all expected to leave and re-engage in things again. And it's just a lot of anxiety for anyone. I do think though, that we are becoming a little bit more open about it. I still think though, that it's, I think, especially with motherhood, it's this situation, like, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Like I, I have heard from so many women only after I shared my story that they also struggled. And I was like, well, where were you the past four years? (laughs) Like, I really would have loved to hear your story, like before I became a mom or like as I was pregnant or as I was struggling versus waiting for me to say it. And then you feel okay to say it. But that's a whole cycle that obviously we all just have to do our own individual part and talk about it more as we feel called to. And hopefully we can continue to reduce the stigma. But I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. And there is that stigma. And when you bring it up with friends, yes, they do start talking about it. But sometimes it takes one person to come forward with it before the conversation even starts. And the same thing goes with doctor conversations. So how do we bring up these conversations with our physicians, with our therapists? I know that I personally just went through this because I wanted further blood tests done. I just wasn't feeling like myself. And I know that there's others out there that are up against that problematic maternal mental health system. I was advocating for myself, but my normal PCP, my normal physician, they wouldn't run the test. So luckily, Amy had just gone to a hormone specialist and was able to run that full panel. But women are speaking up, and we're still not getting the assistance that we need. Or there may be some of our listeners out there that are afraid to speak up, period, because they feel like their doctor, maybe they'll judge them, or maybe they'll say things like, you're not fit for mothering. I mean, these are all the thoughts that can go through our mind. Mm -hmm. So how do we start these conversations with our doctors? you mentioned two problems and they're so real and they're so relevant. And so I want to, I want to tackle the second one first. So the second one being this concept that, oh my gosh, if I bring these thoughts or these, you know, concerns to my doctor, are they going to call child protective services? Are they going to say I'm unfit to be a mother? Unfortunately, I wish that I could say that that's not true and that we do know better, but we don't. So if you're obviously going to see someone who specializes in OCD, they'll be able to go over those details with you and they'll know what to expect because they've been working with this for years. 
if you go just to a general practitioner, a general doctor, I don't know that they would know. They've done research studies to indicate that, you know, when given more ambiguous reports of OCD about postpartum experiences or about there's a lot of other kind of OCD categories out there that don't fit under the contamination or the checking. And so when we give them, when we give doctors um, or other general practitioners, kind of these more ambiguous case examples, like 80% of the time they miss the mark. They do not characterize it as OCD, even though 100% of OCD therapists would. So it's possible. I would love to say that it's not. um, And that I think that we're doing better with it, but it's possible. What I would arm those out there who are listening with, if this is something that's bothering you and you want to communicate this to your doctor or to your practitioner, whoever you're seeing, be very clear about the fact that I do not want to do these things. These things, you can even use the fancy word ego dystonic. (laughs) Tell them that some therapist named Jenna told you to use that word. It's ego dystonic, meaning it is inconsistent with my values. I do not want to do these things. Tell them it's characteristic of obsessive compulsive disorder. I would honestly trust my son with someone who has OCD than someone who like just a random stranger on the street, because someone with OCD is going to be, if they have especially like sexual intrusive thoughts and harm intrusive thoughts, they're going to be avoidant of, of that, right? Like they're going to be the first person to be catching themselves and like not even looking. And they're like to a fault going to be resisting that versus anyone else might enjoy those thoughts, right? These individuals with OCD do not enjoy these thoughts. And so I would arm them with that knowledge and make sure that that you impress that upon the professional that you're seeing and that they're very clear about that. And so secondly, the issue of just general advocating for yourself, you will have to. Again, like that's the unfortunate reality, but I think we can, instead of being on the defense, I would encourage people to be on the offense. Instead of being on the defense of being fearful that, you know, they're going to be judged or fearful that they're going to say they don't have OCD be on the offense, like take all this information that you got from this podcast or that you've done for yourself, go on the offense and say, I'm really struggling. This is causing me a lot of distress and impairment in my life. I'm not able to do my activities of daily living, so on and so forth, the way that I want to, like I need help. I will tell you guys, and like, this should just make everyone be ready to advocate for themselves there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with anyone listening. It's something wrong with the system. So I'm a therapist, right? Like I've been doing OCD specialized therapy for 10, 12 years. And my OBGYN knew that she knew that she was very clear about that. When I showed up for my six week appointment and I was in tears saying that I was having intrusive thoughts, saying that I wasn't sleeping at night, saying that I was you know, having to pull my car over because I was terrified that I left my son in the grocery store, even though I could like see him and touch him. Like I was just like, what if I left him there? What if I'm so sleep deprived that I left him there? She told me that I just need to sleep more and that I just need to give him a pacifier. And I had this moment of like, I can't imagine I've been doing this for 12 years. I know exactly what this is. I cannot believe what you just said. And I can't imagine her saying that to another mom who doesn't have the context that I have. So just know in advance, you probably will have to advocate for yourself, but that's not indicative that there's something wrong with you or that you're not 
you know, crazy enough or that you're not, not crazy enough. Like there's nothing wrong with you. It's something wrong with the system. And if you just really, really advocate for yourself after having the information here, you'll be able to be on the offense and not as much on the defense. Just from my own personal experience, it was so frustrating because I kept on bringing up the exact same issues and thoughts and challenges that I was having, and then they just kept on pushing me in a different direction. So it's just hard when you're being told from one doctor one very specific thing. In my case, I had hypothyroid disease, but it was being misdiagnosed as depression. So I was going down this line that didn't end up being what what I needed or the help that I needed. So, okay, those are really, really good points to make sure that we're bringing up. And especially you listeners who are having some of these thoughts, the reoccurring patterns, all the tendencies that we're talking about today, those are good things to start to bring up. Can you name that that term one more time? So the term to describe that you would want to definitely tell your doctors or anyone who you're meeting with, especially if you're really afraid that, oh my gosh, what if they call child protective services? What if they say I'm unfit to be a mom? Use the word ego dystonic. So what that means is that's inconsistent with your values. I do not want to have these thoughts. I do not believe that I necessarily produced that thought. Like that's not coming from me and from my character. Thoughts can either be ego syntonic or ego dystonic. Ego syntonic is I like that thought. That thought gives me desire. I am fantasizing about that. I like that thought. That makes me feel good. Ego dystonic is, oh my gosh, I'm going to be sick to my stomach. That's awful. I never want to have that thought again. So if you say these thoughts are very ego dystonic, I do not want to do these. This is obsessive compulsive disorder you'll probably blow them away. You'll probably obviously know more than they do, but that's going to be the ticket. That's going to be what it is that they're kind of trying to identify for you. And not that it's going to fix the broken healthcare system with one word, but it'll at least give you a little bit of credentials heading into that conversation. Absolutely. They'll be like, whoa, okay, let me go (laughs) see what that word means. Oh my gosh, they actually know what they're talking about. (laughs) Okay. And now a break for our second sponsor, which is Rothy's Shoes. You guys, it's 2021 and nobody has time for uncomfortable shoes. I am all about comfort and I love the fact that with Rothy's, there was no break-in period. So because they're made of sustainable products like water bottles, I was definitely skeptical. But as most of you know, Amy and I go for an afternoon walk every single office day and I never once had an issue with blisters or with rubbing when I wore them, even for the first time. So on these walks, especially in the Midwest spring and summer, they get dirty. Like our shoes get dirty and it's nice knowing that these are 100% machine washable. So you can literally just toss them in and they look and feel as good as new as soon as they come out. So Rothy's are available in tons of shapes, styles, colors, sizes. So you can always find the right one for you. And their best sellers are well stocked, and the new styles they have on their site right now are so adorable. I also just saw that they launched a men's shoe line. So if you have a guy in your life that might need a little bit of a style upgrade, this is going to be an awesome company to go with. So you can upgrade your closet by going to rothys.com slash herself to find your new favorites today. Again, that's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash herself. Coming back to the episode, for those that do experience OCD and anxiety, we've talked about this a little bit, but I would love to hear what treatment is available and what does treatment look like? Right. So so anxiety and OCD are going to fall under the category of treatment being 
cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, um, really is kind of the grandfather or grandmother of a bunch of other smaller therapy interventions um, like acceptance and commitment therapy and exposure and response prevention. So if you go to a therapist and they say that they do CBT, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they do exposure and response prevention or ERP even though ERP is under that CBT umbrella. So you can think of it as an umbrella. CBT is the umbrella and ERP is under that. So you definitely do want, when you have anxiety and OCD or OCD, you want to make sure that you are seeing someone who specializes in exposure and response prevention. So the thing with anxiety and OCD is a lot of times people tend to just go to a general, what I would call a talk therapist. So when I say talk therapist, I mean someone who's not really having a structure to their sessions. They're not really following a certain evidence-based practice or protocol. You kind of go in and you have this non-judgmental, empathic person who might be awesome. I've seen one before and she was incredible. She got me through some really difficult times and she was great. But with that said, when you're working specifically with obsessive compulsive disorder, you really need an evidence-based practice that's called exposure and response prevention. So ERP is actually more effective for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment for any other disorder. So what that means is, you know, as awful as OCD and anxiety is, you also will get a lot of good bang for your buck when it comes to the treatment. So it's a really helpful treatment. It's more effective than anything else that's out there. You can take medication for it, but medication in and of itself is not going to be helpful. Medication, I always say, can help you get to the starting line, but it's not going to run the race for you. The race, really, what you need to be doing is exposure therapy, exposure and response prevention. So exposure and response prevention, again, you would work with a therapist to identify what your safety-seeking behaviors are, what your rituals are, what your compulsions are, whether that was avoidance having your husband do things for you. Counting is another really big and common one. Cleaning, washing hands, sanitizing, anything could be a compulsion. Then you'll also work with a therapist to identify your triggers. So putting socks on my son, leaving the grocery store in my car by myself. When my son touches the floor, other things. And I mean, anything can trigger anybody, right? So it's all personal and all specific to you and your situation. Once you identify those things with your therapist, you and your therapist are going to collaborate to come up with ideas for exposures. You'll be asked to identify and to do exposures in a way that's challenging but manageable. So we don't ever flood anybody. We don't ever try to do what is a 10 out of a 10 um, on the anxiety scale. We don't also try to do things that are ones. Um, we try to find that sweet spot of things that are a three or a four. It's starting to get a little intense. I don't really like it, but I feel confident in my ability to do it. But you need to make sure that you're not doing the rituals. So exposure would be allowing sun to crawl on the floor the ritual prevention would be without washing his hands after. The exposure would be, you know, cutting vegetables in front of son while son is in the kitchen. Ritual prevention would be not having husband home at the same time. So you can really get a sense of how everyone's treatment really totally depends on their unique issues and their unique goals. But you work on those exposures, you do them a couple of times, and it's kind of like watching a scary movie. The first time it's really, really scary, and you're kind of like plugging your ears. And if you're like me, you're like, your eyes are closed the entire time. 
But when you watch the same movie 1500 times, not that you have to do exposures that many times, but it starts to just get boring. You've learned all the parts. You've learned that it's not that scary after all. So there are a lot of cool reasons why exposure therapy works. One is of them is habituation. Like I mentioned earlier, you just kind of get used to it. You get used to the anxiety. You start to realize that these things can be uncomfortable, but they're not necessarily dangerous, that you can have these thoughts and it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to go badly, but you also will learn. So there's something called the inhibitory learning model, which goes back to what I was talking about with the dog, right? So If I am cutting vegetables with my son and I drop the knife and I put them away and I leave immediately from the kitchen, I've only ever learned that knives are bad. I can't tolerate knives. If I am alone with my son and knives, I'm going to lose control. I'm not actually opening myself up to other learning opportunities. Like I can cut, not cut vegetables when my son is here and nothing happens. I can cut vegetables when my son is here and we can actually have a great time together. We can still be safe, but we can have a great time together. So it's all about learning. It's all about habituation. And it's all about doing the hard things. It's about taking back control and not letting OCD win. It's about sitting with uncertainty. It's about doing the hard things and taking back control of the driver's seat. Your anxiety and your OCD might always have a space in the car, but it's about kicking them out of the way, putting them way back in the passenger seat, way, way, way back in the back of the van. And you're taking over now. And so many of our listeners like to put into practice these episodes right away. So the fact that you're able to give so many solutions to things that we think about all the time. As you were going through those, Jenna, I kept on thinking about walking down the stairs with my son without holding the handrail. Like, would yeah. that be the exposure therapy? Okay, good. And I know a lot of others, they ruminate on that as well. Like, am I going to drop them? Do I have to take it one step at a time? So yep. we love mm-hmm. putting these into practice right away. There are lots of other things too. So if you can just resist like that, if you can just resist checking the video monitor, resist checking the temperature, resist washing hands or whatever it is that your ritual is, resisting is the best thing. It is hands down going to be the most effective in that learning. You want to try to resist these rituals as much as you can. Now, with that said, if it's too difficult for you to resist, because some things are just way too difficult, especially when it comes to our children, it's like, I don't care. The stakes are too dang high. You can also play around with two other strategies. So one strategy is postponing. So let's say I woke up in the middle of the night and I had that intrusive thought, oh my gosh, what if I was so sleep deprived that I just like bludgeoned my son and I don't remember what I could do is I could postpone that. So it would be great for me to just resist that altogether and try to just go back to sleep, you know, not check him, not wake up my husband, not ruminate about it. Like you said, just, I don't know. And I'm not going to try to figure it out. But I could postpone that if I couldn't resist it completely. I could set an alarm and say, you know what, if in 20 minutes I still need to do that and feel that I need to do that, I'll give myself permission to do that. But I'm going to postpone that for 20 minutes. It's kind of like waiting 20 minutes in between your dog sitting and giving him a bone. It's not nearly as reinforcing. And that's what we want. We want these behaviors to be less reinforcing. So the other strategy that you could do is you could reduce a ritual. So let's say that, you know, it was too hard for me to not check my my son's head at all. Maybe I would give myself, okay, I'm just going to check his head. 
I'm only going to check his head. I'm not going to check the rest of his body because that's really what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the rest of his body as much. So I'll reduce my ritual. I'm just going to check his head or I, I won't check the rest of his body. Other instances of that would be, Abby, you mentioned the stair one. That's a really common fear. Heights, stairs, balconies are all really common. So let's say if, if you were like, no, I would have to hold on to the banister at some level. Maybe you hold on to it for the first half of the stairs, but maybe for the second half of the stairs, you let it go. And maybe every subsequent trial after that, you try to let go one step sooner. So you definitely could reduce rituals and just try to take small steps forward in that way. Or you could just try to resist it. Resisting is going to be the best thing. But if that's not possible or doable for you, which is totally fine and normal, you could always play around with those other strategies of reducing rituals or, of course, postponing them until a later time. So many good solutions right there. And some of them are baby steps and some of them are taking the leap right from the start, just depending on where you are and what you need to really reach that recovery. So thank you, Jenna. This was an incredibly valuable conversation. And so can you let our audience know where they can find more of you? Yes, absolutely. So I'm over on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh. Like you mentioned, I also have a podcast. It's called All the Hard Things. So there I go over a ton more information about obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and exposure and response prevention. I also have what I call a mini series. It's called Anonymom. And so it's where I interview moms anonymously about kind of their deepest and darkest experiences. It's been really helpful for women and for me um, to just have that solidarity and that real raw talk about what it is that they go through. Lots of episodes about motherhood, postpartum, OCD and anxiety and depression. And then finally, if anyone out there is really, truly struggling and they are wanting to take that next step into therapy, I'm over at NoCD, which is a mobile teletherapy platform where we provide teletherapy services to people who struggle with OCD. So if you're out there and you're feeling like you want to take that next step, uh, we offer therapy in all 50 states. We're also available right now in Australia. We're available in the United Kingdom. We're also working on Canada right now in some other international locations. But we do self-pay. We take insurance. All of our therapists are well-trained in OCD. We're able to work with moms, dads, kiddos. Um, If anyone out there is struggling with a child or an adolescent who has OCD tendencies, the treatment, like I said, it's the most helpful for OCD and anxiety. It's evidence-based and that's the practice that you would be getting. So there's a free 15 minute phone call that you can do to learn more information and get set up. You can just find that phone number at www.nocd.com. We also have a free app. We do free community um, peer-based support groups that are all led by a NOCD therapist. We'll also be adding one that is just mom specific. And I think I will be running that one just because it's a topic that's so near and dear to my heart. So lots of really awesome, great free resources. If you just download the NoCD app, it's free on the marketplace. So www.nocd.com for actual therapy. Otherwise you can download the app and see the awesome resources that are readily available to you right now, including the mom specific support groups that are coming up soon. Jenna, so many good resources right there. Thanks for sharing that with our audience. And we encourage you, if you guys are having some of these thoughts, some of these tendencies, those are really, really great places to start. So thank you again, Jenna, for being on and for shining a light on a topic that we all need to learn more about. Thank you guys so much. 